this morning, we're going to continue our look at the book of 2 Corinthians that we've been going over the last couple months, actually, at this point. And we're going to be going in further into chapter 6. Uh, but this book is actually a letter written by a guy named Paul. Uh, but Paul wasn't his original name. His first name was Saul. And Saul was a guy who was a Roman citizen who had power and privilege. And he was also a religious leader in Jerusalem, rising up through the ranks uh, of the religious elite. Paul had influence and Paul had power. And Paul heard the news of Jesus that the Messiah had come, had died on the cross, and then had been raised from the dead had appeared to his followers, had taught them that all things about the Old Testament were really pointing to him, and then they had seen him rise into the sky to go be seated at the right hand of the Father. Saul had heard that message and rejected it. He had weighed the evidence and said, no, this cannot be true. And he didn't stop there. He went further to become one of the early ringleaders of the persecution of the church. That as the church grew, as more people responded to the news of Jesus, Saul was on the front lines to stone them, to arrest them, to whip, to beat, to kill them. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because Saul on a mission to go kill more Christians, we're told he was breathing murder. He met the risen Lord Jesus, this famous road to Damascus story out of Acts 9. And he was struck blind, and Saul became Paul, the missionary par excellence, the guy who traveled the Roman world, preaching the thing he tried to destroy. And he was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned. The very things he used to focus on for others, he now experienced himself. Saul became Paul and wrote this letter. And the reason I say that this morning and bring that up as the backdrop for everything we're going to talk about is I think it's hard when we read some of Paul's letters to not feel like he was extra holy or extra special. But he was a murderer who became a missionary because of the shed blood of Jesus. He does not have access to something you and I do not have access to today. We all share in worship. We all share in a transformation that is only explained by Jesus. So what Paul has, we have. And as we dive into this text today, which is a challenging Hard text, easy to understand, hard to implement in our lives. I want us to remember that Paul is not uh, special in terms of having access to something we don't have. We have it as well. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the atoning work of Christ. All right, so with that as our backdrop, uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verses 1. We're going to continue on here, and we're going to break it down into three main parts, uh, the challenge, the promise, and the call. The challenge, the promise, and the call. 
So if you've got your Bibles, please stand with me now in honor of the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. So the challenge, the challenge, verse 14, it jumps off the page. This is the biggie. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you've been in the church for a while, you might have heard this one before. Growing up as a kid in youth group, I thought this was applied exclusively to my dating life. Meant to tell me who to date and who not to date. And and as an application point, actually, that's true, right? That was a good application point, but I thought that's all that it was as a kid. But the reality here goes far deeper Uh, Paul is referencing language used for hitching two animals together, right? Yoked together, tied together for the same purpose. They were doing the same job. They had the same goal. And he's saying, you know, two donkeys go together. Two ox go together. You wouldn't want to yoke together or hitch up a giraffe and an ox. A little exaggeration shows how that wouldn't work. But he's not just applying this to animals. He's twisting it and applying it to people. And right away, right away, it hits something in our hearts. It's offensive. We're all the same, aren't we? Deep down inside, we're all just people. And Paul takes that question and he says, no, no. Know from the standpoint that there is a fundamental transformation that has happened through Christ if your faith is in him. If you are worshiping him, you have an exclusive relationship with the God Almighty. You can't act like you worship any old God, any old thing. You have a new and exclusive relationship. He's saying there's something fundamentally different that has happened. The faith in Jesus and his sacrificial work on the cross uh, has changed everything about you at the heart level. And that the rest of your life you will be transforming from the innermost part outwards, right? We call this process sanctification. But Paul is saying, you are not the same anymore. Do not be yoked together as if you were. 
And it's not just about dating and about marriage, although it is, but it's about how you spend your money, your passions, your life. It goes deeper and permeates everything about us. But at its heart is this notion that we are made worshipers of the Almighty God because of the atoning, sacrificial work of Christ. We have been made believers, believers in Jesus. This is the big challenge that just jumps off the page right away, and I have rewritten this message probably four times in the last couple weeks because of how hard this truth is. Because we live in a world and in a culture that is relativistic, right? Which essentially says, you define truth for you, and however you define it, however you work that out, that's all right for you. Just don't impose it on me, right? And that essentially at the end of the day, we're all just the same, and that truth doesn't really matter. But Paul says, no, it matters. There is a truth in Jesus Christ that is foundational, that is fundamental, that is true for the entire world, not just one culture or another. And it's offensive to our modern ears. He doesn't leave us there. He keeps going. Uh, In 14 through 16, he keeps saying, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? A series of rhetorical questions showing these extremes. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And it's important that we unpack this a little bit to make sure we're understanding what Paul uh, does mean and doesn't mean. Two key words help us get there in verse 14. Uh, Look, Paul says partnership, right? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And then he also says what fellowship. So partnership and fellowship. In the backdrop, this is language of table fellowship, language of sitting down and sharing a meal with each other. And in the ancient world, this is not a casual thing. And even further, in the backdrop of uh, Corinth, where they had temples, they would also have these little side patio areas with tables set up that were meant for you to host a meal, bringing your friends and your family together to break bread, to pray, to worship, to honor the God of that temple, the idol of that temple. And so if you went to those meals, if you participated in that, You were paying homage. You were worshiping another god, another idol. So the background of this language, partnership, fellowship, it's not as thin as we might make it in our modern understanding, right? Like I have a business partner. No, this is talking about something deeper, that you're identifying with someone in what they worship. You make sacrifices, offer prayers, eat and toast to that god and that god's glory. But as Christians, if your faith is in Christ, you cannot say that I worship multiple gods or I share the worship of my heart with Jesus and another. Jesus is an exclusive God. And Paul here is is just building on the language of the Old Testament which says God doesn't share his glory. And he's building on the language of Jesus himself In John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is exclusive. Then Paul goes on, verse 15 and 16. What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And I don't know about you, but I don't often use the word accord, right? Well, in Belial, that word there, it's a weird word, only shows up once in the entire New Testament, uh, and it means worthlessness. And it was an adjective that people would use to describe the devil, right? So Paul here is using it as shorthand to talk about the devil or Satan. He's using this word accord, and unless you maybe have that kind of vehicle, I think that's like a sub-brand of Honda, uh, we don't use it very often, right? I don't say I'm in an accord with my friend, blah, blah, right? No. But nation states still use that language. Countries use that language. They have accords with each other that are treaties, that are pacts, that are contracts that say, we have a goal, we both desire an outcome, and we are working together to see that through. The same language of yoking together, right? We are connected together for a shared purpose. So it's another way of getting at that same language. Think an economic accord, right? We want to see both our country's economics, uh, our GDP grow. We want to see the environment grow, the Kyoto Accords, right? These other treaties. And he's saying, what accord could Jesus, who came to defeat the works of the devil, have with the devil? It's hyperbolic, exaggerated language to show us the distance. But this is abstract, I think, for most of us since we don't make treaties and accords with each other on a regular basis. So maybe another imagery will get at this for us, uh, this being Nashville, music. Every day, musicians arrive in our city to make music with other people here, right? Every day. I bet every third person here either has a Kickstarter campaign, a home studio, uh, or knows somebody whose demo is about to drop. Right? We're laughing, but we're all kind of like, that's me, right? <laughs> I have two records on iTunes. It's true. Uh, that's what Nashville is, right? It draws all these talented people together. And when they get here, they're able to produce something that is beautiful. Some of the most amazing music in the world comes out of our city. But when they work together, something basic has to happen. They have to be in tune with each other. When the musicians, when Dave and his crew got here this morning, that was one of the first things they did. They tuned their instruments. And then they said, what key are we playing in today? So that when they played for us, we heard them in harmony. It hit our ears as beautiful. Paul here is saying that Christ is not in harmony with Satan. And if you are in tune with Christ, if by faith in him you have been transformed, that you are learning to sing a new song, that you are becoming in tune with Christ, you are part of a new uh, orchestra, if you will. And you can no longer sing the song of another god or an idol. So I think that's what Paul is saying, but let me say what he's not saying. 
um, I don't think Paul is advocating what we might call the Amish solution. That all of us should be on our phones looking for property in central Pennsylvania, right? Trade in the car, uh, maybe your accord for a horse, right? Uh, I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, and actually, in another letter, he says, hey, if, if you're just trying to avoid people who don't share your faith, that's impossible. You'd have to leave the world. So Paul's not saying that. And in fact, this would fly in the face of the good news of the gospel. Because Paul actually says, hey, we should share this new love, this song that's welling up in our hearts. We should invite others to sing it with us. So he's not saying remove yourself from friendship, from being a neighbor, from your office place. He's not saying those things. And I also don't think he's saying that we can't have community goals and projects that we work on together with people of all sorts of backgrounds. I think that is a good and beautiful thing that is a reflection of God's common grace, that we can partner together for uh, an increase of justice in our city, that we can partner together to end homelessness or hunger or fight inequality. Those are good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. Those are good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. In Christ now, the ultimate thing is to experience the glory of God and reflect that to the world around us. Our ultimate identity and ultimate purpose as Christians is to see God's glory in the person and work of Jesus spread across the face of the planet. We sometimes sing, right, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Do you think about what that means? We're saying that no, not just uh, our own community is going to worship Jesus. We want to see every community worship Jesus. And that doesn't come from a place, Christians, where we say we want to win, right? Some mean-spirited triumphalism. No, we don't want to win and see others lose. But this really, it comes from the fact that the triune God Father, Son, Holy Spirit is so amazing, so beautiful, so tender, so loving, so forgiving that as we're brought into that, we can't help but sing that song and invite others to sing it with us. That's what we mean. And then Paul takes it even further in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? There's that idol language, right? It's referenced in the table fellowship. It comes out right to the forefront of the text here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He is contrasting these temples, these places of worship that have different aims, purposes, portions, saying there is no agreement in the ultimate sense. The one true God does not share his glory. And then the most amazing defense of his primary challenge here at the tail end of verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. There is no room for dead idols when you are the temple of the living God. And with that language, Paul takes us from the challenge to the promise, from the challenge to the promise Because the language he's using here, we are the temple of the living God, uh, in biblical terms, that's Emmanuel language. 
That's God with us. That's the language that God promised throughout the Old Testament that he would come in a new way. He would dwell with his people in a new and more full way. This is the language that we saw when Jesus came in the flesh when he moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled with us. He set up his home with us. And it's unbelievable language because Paul is saying the God, the very God who we understand to have created everything in the universe, including the sun, right? This massive orb of burning gas that is so large it could contain 1.3 million earths, to put it in perspective. This massive God who also handcrafted every song sung by the birds this spring that you hear outside your window when you wake up. This God who handcrafted the universe now dwells in you and with you by faith in Jesus. This is, we cannot grasp this. It's so unbelievable. And I feel like Paul gets that because in verse 16 at the tail end, he says, as God said, right? And you can almost imagine Paul being like, hey, for real, don't take my word for it. As God said. And he starts rattling off this medley of promises from the Old Testament. Let's take a look at them real quick. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul grabs up all these Old Testament promises And he places them smack dab in the middle of the church. Says these promises, these promises are yours. In Christ, these promises are ours now by faith. And all these promises fall under the heading of the big promise, the Emmanuel promise, that I will dwell with you. When's the last time this happened? what Paul is talking about here, this dwelling with you, walking with you. This is the language of the garden when we're told that Adam and Eve enjoyed such perfect rest and peace and unity with each other and with the Lord that they walked with God in the cool of the garden. And it's hard for us to even comprehend. I tried to think of some uh, images, some uh, analogies that got at this, but the best I could think of was this like hazy memory that a lot of us have from our childhood of one summer afternoon that felt perfect and felt to go on forever. But ever since we turned into adults, we've never been able to grasp it again. We can barely remember how good that was. By faith in Christ, what Paul is saying here is the garden has been replanted in our hearts. The garden, by faith in Christ, has been replanted in our hearts. This is union with Christ language. This is you are never alone again language. This is you have been adopted by the Most High God, and you are now a son and daughter. You are beloved. Your wildest dreams in life, whatever you hope most to achieve, uh, security, 
wealth, maybe a second house at the beach, maybe a Honda Accord, right? Whatever those things are. Maybe you're not materialistic. Maybe you just want uh, kids that listen and obey. Ooh, and think you're smart and insightful, right? And maybe even kids that sleep. Let's reach, right? Maybe that's where you're at. But the best things that we can imagine and hope for and dream this side of eternity pale in comparison to the living water that flows like streams out of our hearts now through union with Christ. The deepest joy, the deepest love, the deepest peace are ours now in Christ. So impossible to describe. So I can tell you about the unique flavor combination available in the red velvet cupcake at the Cupcake Collection in North Nashville. I can describe to you how they've balanced the ratio of icing to cake perfectly. And that when you taste it, you're not sure exactly what's happening, but it feels like for a moment your body is caught up outside of itself. (laughs) I can tell you about that moment, but you don't believe me unless you've tasted it. There's a reason why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a subjective experience. Taste and see. It's a subjective experience, but it's grounded in objective facts about you that are now true by faith in Christ. And I want to make sure we catch this. It's grounded in facts about you that by faith in Jesus, you no longer have to do anything for your salvation, and you never could in the first place. Fact, Jesus came to die for you. That by faith, the work is finished. That is a fact. These promises are facts for you now. And out of those truths, we experience the joy ever growing, ever welling up of union with Christ. Objective fact, subjective experience that we get to be welcomed in by our Father God. To be embraced by him as a full son or daughter. And then Paul brings us to the call. The challenge, the promise, the call. Chapter 7, verse 1, he gives us a call to action. And we can think of this like any good website, any website worth anything has a clear call to action, right? You know what they want you to do when you land on their page. Think Google. It's just a blank page with a huge place for you to type and then this tiny little magnifying glass thing that we've all somehow collectively agreed means search, right? You know what Google wants you to do when you get to their page. It's a call to action and that is what Paul gives us here in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, since this is true of you, since this fact has been established, since you've experienced the mercy of the Lord, since the garden has been replanted in your heart, since you are a walking temple of the living God, Be holy, 
cleanse yourselves from every defilement. Literally, everything that you think that is out of tune with that song that Christ is singing in your heart by faith, get rid of it. It is no longer in tune with the song. It's not the right key. Get rid of it. You might have loved that old song. It might have meant something to you at some point, but it can no longer have that same meaning. And what's so beautiful about the gospel is that in Christ, eventually, slowly but surely, that song, that old song you used to sing won't even sound like music. It will sound like clanging. It will sound all out of key, all out of tune. Your heart will reject it. But practically, it is so important for us to get this order right. Look at verse 7, 1 in the beginning. He says, since we have these promises. Paul is not saying, get your life in order. Go and be holy, then come to the Lord. No, he is saying, since this is true of you, since we have these promises in Jesus, that on the cross he dealt with your sin and your rebellion. Now, out of that, be holy. Out of that new reality, cleanse yourself. And this is hard for us. I know it's hard for me because I want to bring something to the table. I want to offer God something. And I so often get this order wrong. I want to say, God, look at what I'm doing for you. I'm crushing it. Are there extra promises for those of us who are super good, right? No, no, no extra promises. There's no secret John 3.17 just for you right? We've got to get this order right. Uh, some language that helped me, and I can't remember who uh, said it originally, but it's root and fruit. Root and fruit. And this is really helpful language. The root is the primary thing. It's the thing that's grounded in the life, right? And, and in a spiritual sense, the root is grounded in your new identity in Christ and his work on the cross. That's the root. That's where the life flows, Right? And the fruit, what comes out of that is this holiness, is this cleansing yourself. It's the singing of the new song. It's the result of what God has done, the root and the fruit. So we don't get that order wrong. But it begs the question, what is holiness? What is holiness? At, at its core, it means set apart. Set apart set apart for the Lord. In the Old Testament, the backdrop of holiness was that God is utterly unique. There is none like him. There wasn't somebody else who could have made the sun or crafted those songs for the songbird by your windowsill. No, God alone can do that. God alone is holy. But now by our identity with Christ, we are set apart. We are called to be holy. Practically speaking, uh, J.C. Ryle, who said this, I think, about 130, 140 years ago, bishop from England, uh, he put it this way, holiness is being of one mind with God, loving what he loves, hating what he hates, and measuring everything in the world by the standard of his word. Loving what God loves. So, Let's bring it all the way down to a really practical level. What will this mean? What will this look like for our lives this week? 
And so I want to spend a little time in closing just on some application points, some takeaways. All right, what do we do tonight? What do we do tomorrow morning in response to this uh, challenge, these promises, and this call from Paul? Uh, the first is remember and run. Remember and run. And here we're trying to get at the root, right, where we're grounded, where our identity now rests. Remember. Remember who you are. By faith in Christ, you are now the temple of the living God. Remember, you are a dwelling place for Christ. This truth is bigger and more beautiful than we can fathom. Sit in it, right? Meditate on it. Maybe this week, read uh, another letter by Paul, Ephesians, and think while you're reading Ephesians, union with Christ, that anytime you see in Christ, in Christ, that's what Paul is getting at. Pray over Ephesians and read that and remember who you are now, what access you have to the Father. Remember and run, and the run part, run to the Father who loves you and sent his Son for you. As we remember who we are now in Christ, we can't help but run to the Father in worship and praise. It's natural. It feels like breathing when we're remembering who we are in Christ. So remember and run. Uh, And from there, uh, last application point, search and guard. Search and guard. This is more the fruit language. Search and guard. Search your heart and your actions. Are there things you need to repent of? Are there things in your life right now, thoughts, actions, whatever, that you know is out of tune with the song that Christ is singing in your heart? If that's true, if you find those things, repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to search you, to know you, to bring to mind anything that maybe you're just turning a blind eye to. The sin that sometimes has been such a part of our life that we don't even think of it as sin anymore. It's just that thing, that part of my life. But search and guard. This last point, guard. Um, Guard yourselves when vulnerable. Guard yourselves when vulnerable. Uh, So often when we find ourselves sick, overworked, uh, lack of sleep, exhausted, stressed, struggling with family issues or work issues, whatever it might be, so often when that's what's going on in our day-to-day lives, we are vulnerable and we find ourselves returning to things that used to give us satisfaction. We find ourselves trying to sing that old song. My encouragement for you is, one, guard, be aware, right? Be aware that that can happen. And then take that knowledge and go to a dear brother or sister in Christ. Go to a family member. Let them know you're in a vulnerable place. Let them know that you're tempted to go seek satisfaction in something else rather than the Lord. Have that conversation in your small groups, right? Here at Trinity, we want this to be a culture of vulnerability where we can go to each other. I am hurting right now, and I honestly don't know how to go to Christ. Can I lean on you, and will you lead me to Jesus? Because I'm just so desperate for a fix right now. Would you sing to me that more beautiful song? So remember and run. Search and guard. 
Finally, if you're here this morning and you aren't sure about who Jesus is and you just have so many questions, would you come grab me, Matt, anybody you saw up here, a friend who brought you to Trinity, and would you wrestle with those questions? We would love to walk with you in those questions. Would you not just put them aside and say, man, I'll deal with it later. Would you take today, tomorrow, this week, and wrestle with those questions of who is this Jesus? What did he do? Is there truth in this message? Because we long, we long for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. We long to sing that song with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, um, this mystery of union with Christ, the joy of these promises that we have access to the Father through the shed blood of Christ who took on the wrath we deserved, Lord, who brought us into communion with the Most High. Lord, these truths are so hard for us to live out of. Lord, we need your spirit. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, Lord. I pray that you would draw us ever deeper into the beauty and the mystery of Jesus, Lord. The depths of his love that we can never plumb. It is a well that goes on and on and on. And I pray that today for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we would just be in awe of your love for us. Would you draw us closer to you now? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.